Most Christians today, and even many non-Christians, are dismayed at the increasing godlessness in American society, a godlessness that is all the more tragic when one considers the high form of biblical culture that was once our national heritage. From kids being gunned down in their schools to a government that sanctions children being cut down in the womb, to cities that allow homosexuals to parade naked in our streets, America's slide into apostasy seems all but complete. There is no doubt that Dr. Francis Schaeffer's warning several decades ago has come true with a vengeance. America has become a post-Christian nation. People blame this tragic decline in all kinds of things. For many Christians, the most popular whipping boy is the devil. For these same people, our cultures slide into the dark night of barbarism takes the form of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The devil's in charge of the world. Society is predestined to get worse and worse, and why polish brass on a sinking ship? Well, if Christians had been doing their job during this decline, if we had been living the radical Christian lives that the Lord of glory calls for and deserves, then perhaps we could fairly blame the devil and the evil inherent in the fallen world. But let's be honest. Let's humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. For too long we've been like the Laodicean church, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And there's really no point in the unsalty salt blaming the meat when it begins to rot. The enemy's prevailing not because he's so strong, but because we've grown so weak. The good news is that this is slowly beginning to change. There's a growing group of Christians who believe it's their responsibility to challenge the anti-Christian character of the culture, not with any partisan political agenda, not with the arm of the flesh, but with the sword of the spirit, and specifically as far as the arena of public policy is concerned, the law word of God. This small yet fast emerging group sees it as their obligation to change society in ways that will bring our nation into conformity with the moral law of God. We must rid ourselves forever of a worldview of defeat and begin to equip ourselves to be the world changers Jesus Christ predestined us to be. Our goal must be nothing less than a great American reformation to see, as Samuel Adams stated after the Declaration of Independence was signed, the restoration of the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. Yes, America can be changed for the better if God's people will realize and embrace one important reality, that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ, that all power in heaven and on earth have been granted to him so that we can confidently go into all the world and disciple the nations, that he will answer the prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In our final segment, we ask these two questions to our panel of experts. What can Christians begin to do practically to rebuild our nation according to the standard of the law word of God? What would a Christian America look like? Yeah, I, I haven't really, you know, I'm so dealing in my, uh, my life and vocation and work is like, how do we make this next incremental step away from Paganville and modern Churcharama, which denies so much of the Bible, 
uh, towards some kind of biblical sanity. I haven't really, uh, I mean, I'm very familiar with the writings of Jordan and Chilton and, you know, uh, people have put a lot more thought into the implications of uh, a Christianized nation. Um, I can say what the law of God says and stipulates. And you start applying it, I, I think that there, there has to be uh, a long-running conversation uh, with men that, that probably have the same presuppositions. Uh, but when it comes to application, again, it's problematic because we're looking through the eyes of the New Testament. You know, what, there, there has been a change. I mean, you cannot deny the book of Hebrews. You know, it's changed, and what kind of change has taken place, and how does that, exp that change express itself when it comes to applying Old Testament law? We may be the most free nation on the face of the earth, but that is a very relative comment. If we compared ourselves to the freedom that we had uh, for the first, you know, hundred years, at least after the Civil War, uh, I think we would be amazed at the freedom that a culture that submits to the law of God actually experiences. The thing that frustrates me, I think more than anything else, is the incessant desire among evangelicals to seek the approval of the world and the state. I don't understand it. There is this, this hunger for acceptance, as if we're validated by having a, a one seat at the table at the Republican convention, or, or having the, uh, the Honorable Scalia endowed chair in the Supreme Court. Uh, that's not what we're after. We're not trying to be respectful. We're not trying to find a, 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 a place at the table. We're trying to make manifest the kingdom of God over all things. Now that, that may sound scary to a lot of people, uh, both inside the church and outside the church, but the kingdom of God is a righteous kingdom, and this is what we're called to do. We're to exercise dominion in the name of Jesus Christ. And that, if, if that bothers people, then we have to say, so be it. We have to be willing to be despised by men. Uh, and, and stop trying to dress up and look reasonable to people. Just frustrates the heck out of me. My goal, my ministry, my, my outreach to the, to the world at large is an outreach to the church at large because the world runs the church. And we cannot have the church run the world until we run the world out of the church, which means out of our own thinking. God allowed uh, our Coalition on Revival organization to bring theologians together from different uh, theologies and sweep through 2,000 years of church theology and boil it down into a beaker, in a big gallon beaker, boil it down to a fine white powder at the bottom, and we came up with what we call the 42 Articles on the Christian Worldview. They are marvelous, I believe. We've sent these 42 articles. It's a generic statement of faith for all denominations. We've sent it to every denomination where we could get an essential address. And we've got nothing but rave notices about how wonderful this is, how comprehensive it is, and how it fits their denomination. And I mean, this is Lutheran, Episcopalian, and Assembly of God, and Baptist, and Presbyterians, and denominations that you've never heard of, and independents. And what we did was leave out areas like eschatology, baptism, church government, modes of worship. We did not intentionally speak about those things. 
But what I'm telling you is there is far more doctrinal unity potential in every city than anybody knows about because of this thing called the 42 Articles. And, one, and we've got that now. That's a handy thing. And everywhere I go, it blows people away because uh, they didn't know they had so much in common with the Lutherans or the Assembly of God or the Baptists. So you start with a group of serious Christians who are obedient and who are willing to die for the cause to die for Jesus and the brethren and the truth. If we don't have that, we can't make headway in any century, but particularly at a crisis point in history like we have now, the coming collision course between Christian uh, philosophy and anti-Christian philosophy, we must have people willing for martyrdom and holy living. Then there needs to be we believe a number of committees in each city where the Christians involved in the arts, Christians involved in communications, in the law, in economics, in uh, family, in counseling, in medicine and all, that they connect together into this united army that we believe must form in every city, a united spiritual army of Christians. I'm proposing that we actually systematically find people to run for office and attempt systematically, professionally, and constitutionally to capture the majority of seats in every state legislature, city council, county board of supervisors, the U.S. Congress, and then take the mayor, sheriff, governor seats. We must be about the business of rebuilding civilization on the principles of the Bible. And that would be our restatement of the Great Commission. Now, we were a church of about 25 families when we decided uh, to, to make the switch. And I stood in my pulpit on a Sunday, Sunday morning and, uh, and basically just said, we are going to become a Christian Reconstructionist church. We are going to embrace the Reformed faith with all the vigor that God gives us. I said to my people, you followed me when I had no theology. Follow me now as we learn this together. We were your typical evangelical, born-again, spirit-filled activist church. Our theology was a mild wide and about an inch deep. Uh, we were sincere, and I believe that's why God kept us together all those many years and blessed our efforts. But we had reached a point where he was demanding maturity. He, we had reached a point where we were realizing there's no such thing as neutrality. We were reaching the point where we were finally aware of the fact that you can't beat something with nothing. And so in our long odyssey, that odyssey to become epistemologically self-conscious uh, that was the jumping off point that Sunday and then uh, we set about to systematically teach the reformed faith starting with a virile Calvinism first which we believe is the starting point uh, followed up by an optimistic and victorious post-millennial eschatology uh, then I did uh, I did 18 months teaching the Ten Commandments we became covenantal in our worldview, and then we became Noxian in our social theory. In other words, we liked the idea that there was greatness in the Great Commission. This idea that, you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus really was enough to accomplish his plan in time and history. We liked the idea 
that when he said on the cross, it is finished, that's exactly what he meant. We like the idea of his suggestion in the Lord's Prayer that everyday Christians, disciples, those who loved him, whose hearts burned for him, needed to pray uh, every single day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth where the battle takes place as it is in heaven. We were smart enough to know that in heaven the battle's done. We realized that in heaven there are no wicked, there is no sin, there is no fight up there. The fight is here in time and history where Christians have been called to the kingdom. And so putting all those things together, um, all of this new theology started to really take, uh, you know, form and shape, uh, not only in our hearts where it must begin, but in our day-to-day -day living. And so after five years, what we realized we had was uh, finally the wedding of uh, charismatic zeal, but tied to Christian orthodoxy. And uh, we believe uh, finally we have the tool of dominion now. When the day comes where the zeal of the charismatic movement, which indeed is blessed of God, is finally wedded to sound Christian orthodoxy, we're going to see something in the earth um, that will cause people to look and to listen. And I believe we're on the beginning edges of that. Uh, my own background speaks of that. Um, no one could ever... Um, take us to task for a lack of zeal, uh, but zeal without knowledge is very, very dangerous. It's up to the pastors now to start reading those materials and breaking it down as God has gifted us with an ability to do. What our job has to be is to take those fat books and break them down, as it were, into the three-fold glossy pamphlets, something that our people can understand. When we do that, and as we do that, and as we combine that with day-to-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, street activity and acts of mercy, um, God is going to bless local churches like we have never seen before. It's, it's just called the Great Commission. At the beginning of this century, 80% of the world's Christians were in the Americas and Europe. Now only 40% because more and more of the new Christians are in Asia and Africa. We have today a country in Africa that is Christian Reconstructionist. Now, here are blacks running a country trying to reorder everything in terms of the Word of God. We don't hear these things because we feel that we are the center of the world and what we are and what we do is all important. But things are happening very dramatically. The media is not given to reporting about on Christian successes or on Christian martyrdoms. They act as though Christianity is dead and uh, we are too stupid to lie down and be buried. But the reality is very different. That's why there's so much animosity towards what we're doing, because they know it's catching on. After all, when the president and vice president of a country in Africa have affirmed that they believe that God's law should rule the country, that's major news, but the media won't touch it. The way that the state 
attempts to supplant God. And this is true of communism, fascism, uh, socialism. It can happen in a democratic republic. The way that it usually functions is that it intrudes upon the God-given rights of personal property and the pursuit of happiness and these things which are codified in our founding documents. Let me give you an example. When the state begins to tax property, when it says that that property which is given to you by God is now uh, subject to their rule and their reign, you no longer own that property. You are and have become a serf. And so through property taxes, uh, income taxes, you know, God gives you the, the power to get wealth. It, it didn't say he, he is the direct disperser of wealth, but that he gives you the power to get wealth, to honor God. When they begin to tax income, property, and things of this nature, they are intruding upon rights that God has given you. If they curtail your speech regarding the gospel, we see that, for example, around uh, abortion mills, these buffer zones, we cannot preach the gospel, declare God's law. These notions to control the freedom to worship God, these are all signs of tyranny. But the good news is this. Tyranny only goes so far and can go so long be before it begins to burn out. First, because of its own corruptions. Uh, secondly, because in regarding taxation, there's only so much money and so much property to tax. Eventually, this insatiable appetite for more has to be curtailed by simple arithmetic. I think that in America today, we have reached the point where both moral corruption, infidelity to God's law in the civil realm, humanism as a, as a life system, whether it be in the collegiate realm uh, uh, or among the intellectual elites, Darwinism, all of these notions are coming to the end of their political and social lifespan. In fact, I can hear the death rattle in the throat of humanism. They know it. Now this is in one way encouraging, but in another way it leads us to the most dangerous period. Whenever these systems begin to collapse, uh, men who have tied their fortunes, their lives, their reputations to these corrupted and falling paradigms become very vicious and violent. We see this, for example, in the old Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union began to collapse, it was uneven. Uh, we see anarchy, we see murder, we see the Russian Mafia, we see all these different kinds of things, and, and yet there could be war. Uh, there's tremendous political tumult there and in Eastern Europe, and uh, we don't see the end of this yet. The same thing could happen in America. When humanism ultimately collapses and Christians hopefully rise to the fore, we could see things, for example, like the breakup and realignment of the United States. What has happened in the Soviet Union could certainly happen here. And those are dangerous times uh, where one system is collapsing and another system arises. My great hope is that there is sufficient reformation and reconstruction in the church that when the paradigm of humanism ultimately collapses, we will be able, in the crisis, to fill that vacuum. Otherwise, we'll exchange one tyranny for another.
I've traveled all over the country for years speaking in churches, teaching the Ten Commandments, and quizzing entire congregations. How many of you know the Ten Commandments? Saying, get out a pen and paper, write them down right here, right now. It's amazing if 2% of any congregation knows the Ten Commandments. 2%. Now, if we say we want to rebuild the country on the Ten Commandments, that's a good thing. But if we don't know the blueprint, how are we going to build? I mean, would you trust a carpenter to come into your house if he didn't know how to read blueprints or didn't know how to build? I mean, it's absurd. So, I'm urging Christians, I mean, I'm asking you point blank, do you know the Ten Commandments? Can you say them in order? Can you say them, what's the Fifth Commandment? What's the Eighth Commandment? What's the Seventh Commandment? Can you identify them by number? That's question number one. Question number two, are you obeying the Scripture that commands you teach your children these commandments. When I realized that I didn't know the Ten Commandments a few years ago, first of all, I was embarrassed, then I learned them, then I taught them to my children. Learning the Ten Commandments is a great starting point. Once you've learned them, then begin to meditate on them, begin to think of the implications. What are the cultural and political implications of the Fifth Commandment? Honor your father and mother. Well, the French Revolution and our government says every child is a child of the state. Wait a minute. That's a direct assault on the fifth commandment. The eighth commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, that means I can't take a candy bar to the grocery store. But it also means that the government doesn't have the right to take more from us than God himself. God only requires 10% of the faithful. For the government to take anything over 9.9 is tyranny and theft. It's the violation of the Eighth Commandment. So the challenge before us is to not just memorize the commandments, but to have a comprehensive worldview that is based upon those commandments. And when you do it, frankly, it's pretty exciting because you see how the law of God reaches into every area of life and it brings about incredible blessing and incredible freedom. The beauty of the law of God in the Christian religion is that it's the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. It's that portion of God's Word that convicts us of our sin. It is that portion of God's Word that helps equip us to do the work of the ministry. But even higher than that, the words of Jesus Himself, go into all the world and make disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. The battle for America is a battle between two spiritual allegiances those who'd restore America to a Christian republic under the lordship of Christ, and those liberal humanists who believe that man is sovereign. In the public square, our modern culture war can be likened to a covenantal battle between the neo-Puritans and the neo-pagans. The battle in the church is also a covenantal battle. It's a battle between those who hold to a victorious ecclesiology and believe in the lordship of Christ over the totality of human life and those who believe we are predestined for defeat and that the earth belongs to the devil and the Antichrist. Our vision is to see Christians everywhere doing all they can to take every sphere of society captive to the obedience of Christ. To, in the words of C.S. Lewis, see them engage in a great campaign of sabotage, of divine sabotage, waged against the kingdom of darkness and its lies. Even now, a spiritual army is being enlisted by our Commander-in-Chief, Jesus Christ, to see revival come to this sin-sick land, and then to rebuild America upon the principles of the Bible. 
soldiers are being enlisted. The lines of battle are being drawn. The great American Reformation has begun. If you'd like to get involved in this battle, please contact us at the Alliance for Revival and Reformation. and Reel to Reel Ministries.